Well, this weekend, the British Grand Prix, the start of the Tour de France, England versus India in cricket, and last, but I'm sure certainly not least in your case, Wimbledon. So Sam, which which one has preoccupied you? Well, for me, it absolutely has to be Wimbledon. It's my favourite two weeks of the year, and I know I say this every year. I think this is the second time we've recorded during Wimbledon, Um, and so I'm enjoying that in between um, preparing for the podcast as well. I mean, I don't look at England, India in the cricket at the moment, but um, I'm glad that Wimbledon has been able to keep me occupied. Have you have you caught any of it, Chern? Um, vaguely, I, I do like to watch the style of Grand Prix now just to see who crashes. But uh, other than that, I think this year's Wimbledon is quite interesting, actually. No Roger Federer, so it does feel a little bit weird. Um, but uh, who do you think will win on the men's and women's side, by the way? On the men's side, I mean, I think it probably will be Novak Djokovic, especially considering the next two Grand Slams he's probably not going to be able to compete in. So this one matters a lot. Um, but I really, I really do want Rafael Nadal to win because it would bring him three quarters of the way towards the first calendar slam in men's tennis since Rod Laver in the 1960s. So that would be quite something. Um, on the women's side, I really don't know. It's yesterday, I mean, yesterday, Saturday, 2nd of July, Iga Swiatek was knocked out. Her 37-match winning streak was ended. Um, she was the seemingly red-hot favourite for the title. So now I'm not sure. I'm not sure, but looking forward to it. Absolutely. Well, don't worry to all the political nerds out there listening. This is actually a politics podcast, so please do not (laughs) tune out. But nonetheless, it is Sunday, the 3rd of July, 2022. And this is Ballot to Talk About. Hello and welcome to episode 85 of Ballot to Talk About. Joining me, as always, from the other side of the globe is my co-host, Sam. Well, Sam, how's everything going? How's the weather like? Yeah, it's not too bad. I mean, those few weeks of glaring sunshine we'd had seem to have ended for the moment, but it looks like it's picking up again in the next couple of weeks, so that's exciting. Um, But yeah, everything's going well, and I couldn't believe it when you just said 85. We're hurtling towards that... 100 very quickly um so um it's it's been a wild ride but a great one how about you Chen? uh yeah i'm doing good thanks uh i hope it's not too hot in <laughs> frankly speaking not for my only own personal gains whatsoever but uh we should actually take a bet and we'll do this maybe on episode 90 or which country will fall on episode 100 so we have five <laughs> episodes to think of which country would that be But for now, this week, our attention would turn back to the United States. And I'm actually surprised, Sam, that the last time we covered the United States was actually last year in the Virginia gubernatorial elections. It's been almost six months. And um, it does seem like a long time ago. And a lot of politics has taken place since then. And US politics has been in the news lately. In a moment, we'll be looking ahead towards the impending midterms and how the Biden administration has been faring over the last six months. But first, Sam, it is time, it's middle of the year, uh, to conduct our annual review of the Supreme Court as it heads into its summer recess. And Sam, it's it's an understatement to say it's been quite a term, hasn't it? Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's I don't think it's overstating it to say that this has potentially been the most significant term in the Supreme Court recent history, certainly in the last four or five decades, um, because Obviously, everyone will be aware that it's been headlined by the seismic Dobbs versus Jackson case, which has brought an end to the Roe versus Wade precedent that legalized abortion back in 1973. Um, But even beyond that headline, which I'm sure we're going to come on to talk about, there's been some quite significant rulings in all kinds of policy areas across this term. I mean, we had the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin, which has um, expanded the right to bear arms outside without the need for a proper cause, which had been previous previous precedent. Uh, Then we had West Virginia versus the Environmental Protection Agency, which has reduced the power of the EPA to limit greenhouse gas emissions on corporations. 
And then also in the COVID world, you had the um, NFIB versus Department of Labor, which threw out the vaccine mandate that was instated for large companies. So in all these areas, climate change, gun law, abortion, and also COVID restrictions, there have been some quite significant flexing of the muscles of the conservative majority on this court, which I think many people did see coming. But I don't know about you, Chern, as an initial reaction. Did you expect them to go this hard, this fast? Well, when you say this hard, this fast, don't forget, it has been, uh, that was with the expectation last year, and that didn't eventuate to the same extent. A lot of liberals breathed a sigh of relief last year compared to this, but certainly this year's cases have been very much in a conservative direction. I think there are some cases on the conservative side that I am not surprised. If you look particularly at the history of the Roberts Court, um, the one, for example, on West Virginia versus the EPA, curbing the power of the EPA, generally this court has been pro-business in terms of winding back government regulations as well. So frankly, I am not surprised by that. And to a lesser extent, the NFIB versus Department of Labor case as well, because like these are, you know, less government intervention, you know, these, I, I, I would expect that to be very much the norm in this case. I think what is interesting from my point of view is um, on the COVID uh, mandate case is the Biden versus Missouri case, which is a 5-4 decision where both Roberts and Kavanaugh joined the three justices, where basically th this 5-4 decision upheld the uh, upheld a policy required COVID vaccinations for most healthcare workers at facilities that receive Medicaid and Medicare funds. So, on COVID, it doesn't appear to be as clear-cut as climate change, I would say, as the history of the Roberts Court suggests. The gun rights case, again, I'm not surprised. That is something in which this court has been quite pro the Second Amendment as well. So the New York State Rifle and Pistons Association versus Bruin, you know, I am not surprised by that. DC versus Heller in 2008 was one of the big cases, and this is kind of a similar thing. This is the concealing carry case. So really, I'm not surprised by that whatsoever. I think where I am surprised, it's really, we haven't seen this until, and this is the full impact of the legacy of Donald Trump's four years and his ability to appoint three conservative justices, and more importantly, appointing one conservative to replace a liberal justice is in the realm of how socially conservative this court is. And you clearly see that in Dobbs versus Jackson, a 6-3 ruling, you know, in favor of the Mississippi state law of banning abortion itself. You know, just a couple of years back, we saw a 5-4 case, Louisiana versus the United States, where John Roberts um, decided with the liberals against that. Uh, and that would have essentially been a reversal Roe v. Wade. And, you know, this is just a couple of years later, this has totally been, yeah. Uh, ruling gone the other way. And I would say as well that this, the overall, this is a term I think that is characterized by social conservatives. If we look at the Carson versus Making case, which is the, which is a main law uh, invalidating a main tuition program stating that the state cannot bar religious schools from receiving public grants extended to other private schools. That was uh, clearly divided along ideological lines of six to three. But I would also like to point out some other cases as well. Kennedy versus Brereton School District is the other one, where the 6-3 conservative majority sided with a high school football coach who was fired after leading post-game prayers on the 50-yard line. And again, other, other ones where we can see the influence of religion, although this time around the liberals did join in, was in uh, Ramirez versus Collier which is an 8-1 ruling where the death row inmates entitled to have his pastor touch him and pray aloud at the time of his execution. And uh, a Shutleff versus Boston, which is a, a unanimous ruling actually, saying that striking down the fact that it was unconstitutional for the city of Boston to deny a ceremonial city flag-raising request from a Christian group when it never turned out any other organisation. So I, I would say that a big difference this term on, the social, on conservatism is on the social conservative element. Yeah, and I think I think you're right in saying that we shouldn't necessarily be too surprised that they've gone in this direction because this was this was always coming in the confirmation hearings of all of three all three of Trump's um, 
Supreme Court justice appointment hearings, there were questions asked about Roe v. Wade constantly. And it's no secret that Mitch McConnell, the now Senate minority leader, formerly majority leader, this was him and his caucuses raison d'etre throughout this entire process of trying to get more conservative Supreme Court justices onto the court was the Roe v. Wade decision and other um, social changes that have been enacted by the court setting precedents. Um, so in that respect, there's no particular surprise. I think I was surprised that they seem to have gone in so quickly because I think any um, anyone observing the court could probably tell you that the court is probably going to remain in this composition for quite some time. I think it's incredibly unlikely that Joe Biden is going to get to appoint another Supreme Court justice, although stranger things have happened. Um, and if anything, the two justices who uh, would leave the court um, sort of within the near future, Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito, they're, they're not particularly old by Supreme Court justice standards. So, I mean, the timelines for this changing seem by precedent further in the future. Um, and therefore, I was a bit surprised with the urgency with which um, the court has rushed through this kind of decision. Um, but I suppose now that they have the majority and it's in front of them and they believe it, why wouldn't they do it as soon as they get that case in front of them? But I think that's the only element of surprise to me. Well, I'll just tell you how ideologically divided this court is along the conservative and liberal uh, lines. I, I just find it amazing that if we look at the six conservative justices that were all um, that uh, that were appointed, if you a uh, new Gorsuch was a bit more rebellious, at he agreed his his vote was, was the same with the judgments 76, 75 times or so, so every three cases, in three and every four cases. But you know, if you look at Sonia Sotomayor, who is right at the very other end, the liberal end, it she only agreed with the judgments. Um, 57.6% of the time. So it's quite a yawning gap. And if you look at Brett Kavanaugh, John Roberts, Amy Comey Barrett, they agreed with the just with the judgments 90% of the time. So I, I suppose, Sam, given that the Chief Justice is, you know, he wrote he was in agreement with the justice 94% of the time. There have been some articles I saw on political, for example, saying that the John Roberts has lost control of his court. But do you agree with that judge that statement that he's lost control? Is this still the Roberts Court? I think that's a really big question to answer. Um, but on John Roberts, before I launch into my answer to that question, one thing I did in preparing for this podcast was go back and look at our review of the 2021 term of the Supreme Court. And one of the big themes that we talked about was how John Roberts had become almost the, the swing voter on the court. And it was the direction in which he went that sort of decided how the court was going. And particularly because of his deep held, deep held belief that he didn't want the court to be too activist or look too overtly political, he was siding on decisions that weren't making big seismic change. I mean, it's now clear, especially since the Amy Coney Barrett appointment, that he is not really the ideological centre of the court. I mean, there's a strong argument to make that that's actually now someone like Brett Kavanaugh, who is further to the right ideologically than John Roberts would seem to be on paper. Um, but that said, as you said, I mean, John Roberts has sided with the majority opinion in an overwhelming majority of cases in this term, which would suggest that it, he still sort of does have some control because decisions are going his way. If John Roberts were always going to be on the dissenting side of the argument, then I'd say, oh, he's absolutely lost control of this court because decisions aren't going in his direction. He's the chief justice. But this time, I think... Um, I think he is mostly in control. And I say mostly because his involvement in the Dobbs versus Jackson case in particular, I think is notable and very interesting because that case was decided 6-3 in that six, six of the justices, including John Roberts, agreed with um, the actual case that was put towards them specifically around the Dobbs versus Jackson dispute. However, it was 5-4 if you then look at extending that precedent to removing 
the legal precedent established by Roe versus Wade in 1973, because in fact, John Roberts wrote what was called a con concurring opinion with the verdict by the other five justice, five conservative justices in saying that he agreed with their decision in the case and he was part of the majority opinion of the case. But he didn't agree that that extended legal precedent to throw out Roe versus Wade. And he also didn't agree with the methodology of them reaching that decision. So I think that is really interesting because this could become a theme if more social cases come before this court in that John Roberts might be starting to lose control because he's a very incremental chief justice. He doesn't want the court to seem overtly political and he doesn't really want the court to be activist in changing legal precedent or establishing legal precedent on significant social change. So if there are more cases like this that come forward and the other five conservative justices agree, then Roberts's opinion on this matter is not particularly significant. And we saw that in Dobbs versus Jackson and potentially we'll see that again. So I guess that's a long-winded way of saying, I think he's still in control, but he might increasingly find that he's losing that. Yeah, I think, and I think the pivotal one is the appointment of Amy Comey Barrett, because that mandate, you have six conservative justices here and Amy Comey Barrett, I, I think in some of our rulings has not, we haven't seen where, Sometimes Roberts and Kavanaugh does go with the liberal side to get a 5-4 decision. So for example, the, the case I talked about, Biden versus Missouri, that was the case that it was 5-4 and those two justices. But I haven't seen Amy Comey Barrett move with John Roberts in a 5-4 when he decided with the liberals yet. So I think that is something interesting to watch as well. Like for example, another case is Biden versus Texas, the last case actually to be heard in the Supreme Court term where um, it was a win, one of the few wins for the Liberal side, where the, the, the court ruled that the Biden administration had the authority to reverse a Trump-era policy that required asylum seekers to remain in Mexico while the cases are reviewed in the US court. So, you know, there are, so that was in one of the few Liberal victories, uh, small crumbs, I would say, compared to some of the vast change that has taken place this. But Nonetheless, I think that the position of Amy Comey Barrett coming onto the court has fundamentally altered that, that calculus of the likelihood. And it's now much harder to get these 5-4 decisions for the Liberals. And it does seem that 5-4 for a Liberal perspective seems to be the upper ceiling, doesn't it, Sam? Yeah, I mean, look back to a year ago when we were having this discussion. California versus Texas was a case we discussed extensively in terms of it seeming like ideological ideology wasn't a hugely motivating factor on constitutional grounds. I mean, California versus Texas seems a million miles away from where we are today in terms of the the willingness of the majority to to flex their conservative muscles, it seems, because I would imagine that if a case like California versus Texas came before the courts, right now, I think there would be a very different outcome. Indeed it is. Any, um, before we move on uh, to talk about uh, um, uh, some any interesting cases, I, I think we cannot ignore what was probably the biggest case this year, which is Dobbs versus Jackson. Now, Sam, if you recall, in February, there was an unprecedented leak out of the Supreme Court, something we have never seen before, or something I can't remember, is that the Alito opinion which turned out to actually mirror a lot of what turned out to be the majority opinion, was leaked. And that was, that was really when people realised, hang on, that this is really a possibility. So Sam, what was your reaction to the leak? And what, what does this suggest about American politics more generally? I mean, my reaction to the leak was similar to my reaction to the actual case when it was decided, in that it, it almost felt like... Um, this this had been coming for a while, but it was nonetheless still incredibly shocking and disappointing. Um, and if anything, I think the leak sort of softened the blow of the eventual decision because everybody then knew it was coming. And I think it was a Politico article who'd broken down the leak and the eventual decision to try and compare changes. And um, they found that 101,102 characters remained the same and there were just 24,108 added characters. So in terms of the, the leak and the eventual decision, 
they were practically the, the same document. So I don't necessarily know, and I don't know if we'll ever find out what the motivation of the leak was, whether it came from the Liberal justices to try and say, look, we tried to stop this, or whether it came from the Conservative faction saying, look what we've managed to achieve. I don't know if we'll ever know. But um, if anything, I think it just prepared the ground for what was, a, a, and we'll keep saying this, an incredibly significant verdict, um, a seismic social shift in terms of um, American social policy and particularly um, policy towards women's rights. Um, and I think without the leak, we would have had the same guttural reactions from everybody, but the actual verdict day um, would would have been immensely more traumatic than than it was, given that we had quite an accurate leak earlier on. Uh, Chen, a quick question for you is, do you think the leak changed anything? Or do you think the leak was just a precursor to the eventual outcome? You see, I have a theory that the leak was uh, put out by the conservative side, actually, rather than the liberal side who were horrified. It's to try and maintain their numbers in a way. And I, I do note that I think the one notable change, I saw this on Twitter, um, that between the leak and what came out was the fact that, um, that this only applied to abortion or something along those lines, or trying to limit the scope to other social issues like gay marriage, which the court legalized through uh, uh, famously in 2015. So I wonder whether that was put in because they realized the reaction in February and therefore potentially the slippery slope argument of what could have eventuated and therefore to keep one of the justices in line for the conservative side, Alito had to insert that in. Now, whether in a couple of years' time, you know, they'll overturn precedent again, and we've clearly seen that this turn, they're willing to overturn precedent. Um, I think that it's very much, that remains to be seen. But nonetheless, I see this leak as showing that the increasingly divided America, you know, we talk about blue states and red states in America, is that it's also beginning to infect the Supreme Court as well. Now, I'm not sure whether the justices themselves leaked it, but I can imagine some of the staff that they work for, you know, realizing the history making of this case itself, you know, in excitement of one side could leak it. And it suggests that even in the institution, and John Roberts as an institutionalist, I think will be particularly concerned about the approval rate in the Supreme Court, which I believe has dropped to as low as 25%, and how they are being portrayed in the media as well. And I think that leap suggests to me that even the politics and the partisanship that we have seen in Congress and the executive has now come to the Supreme Court. And I think moving forward, that's a very worrying precedent for America, because you often saw the Supreme Court as, you know, slightly above politics, the idea of the judiciary is, you know, to be a balanced a judge, actually, you know, to weigh up the defendants and the, you know, and the prosecution in an accurate manner. But even to see politics, in fact, I think could be very worried moving forward. You share that worry, Sam. Oh, uh, 100%. Um, because I think we've all been aware for quite some time that... Um, the Supreme Court have been increasingly politicised, not just because the process to appoint the justices has become incredibly polarised versus what it was even just even just 15 years ago when Samuel Alito and John Roberts were appointed to the court. It's, it's changed that much in that short period of time. Um, I mean, another thing I, th I thought of a bit about the leak is I wonder if that provided extra motivation for John Roberts to put out his concurring opinion separately so he could at least throw down um text that says i didn't necessarily agree with the eventual direction this went in and some of the precedents it suggests we should attach to it and in fact i think he used the word saying he would have preferred a more um i've forgotten the exact word of it but he said he preferred a more measured course towards ending roe v wade so not necessarily disagreeing with it but suggesting that this kind of blatant severance of legal precedent is something he doesn't agree with. And I wonder if the leak, the reaction to it, especially the guttural reaction of liberals towards the, the trustworthiness of the institution meant that he thought, I have to put down some sort of concurring opinion, which at least shows some kind of, um, at least, at least makes some kind of attempt to restore the reputation of the court, um, whether that worked or not, I doubt it. 
but um, I wonder if that was an extra motivation for him as well to at least get some text down showing that whilst he was in the majority opinion, he didn't necessarily agree with where it was coming from. Well, let's. So there's a lot, to, and I think there will be a lot to look for in the next term. I think to to see how the court moves forward, following quite a momentous term. We already know they are taking out a state elections kind of law and procedure about the power to grant state politicians, which I think will be very interesting indeed. Particularly, I think conservatives will be looking at that with glee, frankly, given the way the courts have acted in the past. But Sam, any closing thoughts or any surprises to you that? of interesting cases that you would like to talk about? Um, I mean, I, th I think obviously the headline, as we said, was the Dobbs versus Jackson case. I think for me, one, one of the most interesting cases, especially given the legislative environment in which it was decided, was the um, New York State Rifle Pistol Association versus Bruin, because it was almost the same day exactly to to which the when the senate passed the gun control compromise bill um which didn't go as far as democrats were wanting on gun control but was the the first gun control package passed by congress in quite some time and it almost came on the same day that the supreme court were establishing this precedent so for me, I thought that was an interesting case to suggest the direction the Supreme Court might go in on gun control, especially in an environment where state legislatures and the national legislature are seemingly trying to strengthen gun control. So I wonder if there's going to be a future collision between those two branches of government over um, how far this gun legislation can actually go. Um, so. In that respect, it that was a super interesting case for me because it's not very, it, certainly recently, we haven't seen huge conflict between the Supreme Court and Congress in the same way that we've seen conflict between the Supreme Court and the presidency. So I think that is an interesting potential thing to look out for and an, an interesting consequence of this kind of, this kind of verdict as well. I think in my case, I would like to talk about um, uh, one of the conservative justices, which I think will give a very interesting thing about how um, we could look at one of the other major social changes that uh, took place because of the court's action, which is gay marriage. And what I find very interesting is how Neil Gorsuch has acted in this term, even in this term as well. Amongst the conservative justices, he agreed with the judgment 75% of the time, which is lower than all the other just all the other conservative justices 80 over and I think that's really interesting and again we can see the fact that he has the only justice from the western half of the United States that he has brought a different perspective and he is willing to not go with the majority in fact the case I'm going to bring up is Oklahoma versus Castro Cueta which is a 5-4 decision where Gorsuch joined with the three liberals inciting with uh, and dissenting from what the majority opinion said and the court which said that Oklahoma uh, has the power to prosecute non-Indians for crimes against Native Americans within a tribal reservation. Now he wrote quite a scathing dissent in that case. Now why I bring this up is that if you recall Sam one of the earlier Supreme Court reviews is that we talked about Oklahoma versus McGitt which was quite a famous case now a landmark case which and which Gorsuch wrote the majority opinion at the time that suggested that Native American lands uh, were as prosecutions of crimes by Native Americans on Native American lands which is much of eastern Oklahoma falls within the jurisdiction of tribal courts and the federal judiciary rather than Oklahoma courts so this suggests to me that um, Neil Gorsuch has quite brought an interesting thing to kind and some consistency I would say um, to some of his decision that could be interesting moving forward. Now, why do I bring this up in Indian law? Because if you remember, Sam, Bostock versus Clayton County, which was argued that exact same year, was related to LGBTQ rights on employment of LGBTQ rights, which, you know, if you recall, that was a textualist um, interpretation of the word sex to cover sexual orientation as well. Now, therefore, given Neil Gorsuch's positioning on this, I think how the court views gay marriage would be very interesting given the fact that Roberts, we saw him side the liberals in this case. We see the New Gorsuch has been willing to buck the trend on Indian reservation, Indian law for the second time. And I wonder whether it will against extend to gay marriage. So I think that could be very interesting. 
I think the key difference though this time around it shows you the power of when of Mitch Mc, of having the president and and the Senate majority of the same party is because of, of that time uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was on the court and now you have Amy Comey Barrett. So when when if a gay marriage case were to come, I think that'd be really interesting to watch whether the court dynamic has changed or whether New Gorsuch does have that rebellious streak as we have seen in Indian reservation laws. Will he apply that to some of the more liberal LGBTQ rulings that he has in the past? I think that'll be very interesting to watch. Don't you think so, Sam? Oh, 100%. And I don't think we'll have to wait too long because one of the co- one of the cases that's definitely in the immediate future for the Supreme Court to look at is um, a free speech case over um, a web designer who is who has refused to design a web page for a same-sex wedding. Um, so at least we'll get some indication quite quickly over where this court sits on LGBT issues. And I mean, certainly if you look at Clarence Thomas's contribution to the majority opinion, I think we're, we're in for a very um, harrowing um, next term. But let's let's see what direction they choose to go in. And I think I completely agree with you. Um, you just reminded me of that of that case we talked about quite extensively um, last time around with with Neil Gorsuch. But as you said, I think the clincher here is that even if Neil Gorsuch does go over to the other side, he would need to take someone else with him. Um, or or this court, that's the power of how significant this this conservative majority is now, is that it doesn't just take one person to change their mind, it takes at least two. Um, and that is going to be a, a tougher ask. Well, Sam, you're exactly right. It's going to be a momentous couple of years ahead, and we will definitely be keeping on coming back this time next year with another Supreme Court review looking back at a term of cases. I think it's also worth mentioning just before we close out on the Supreme Court is that two days ago, um, the new Supreme Court Justice, Katanji Brown-Jackson, has officially taken her seat as the first um, black woman on the Supreme Court. And I think whatever happens in the next year, that's a momentous moment for certain. Absolutely. And that's a very good point to end on. But before we get to the next Supreme Court review, given the momentous nature, you know, in relation to gun rights, which has been the issue thanks to the, the very tragic shooting in Texas, you know, abortion rights being, uh, uh, you know, Roe v. Wade being overturned, you know, how would this, Sam, uh, this series of cases affect the upcoming midterms? Because it is going to be a hot, abortion now is going to be a hot political topic, isn't it? I mean, for sure. And I think that's suggesting that it hasn't been the whole time, which um, is definitely interesting. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think that is a difficult question to answer initially, because one thing I think this issue does is energize both sides in equal measure, because both the Democrats and Republicans care passionately about a different side of, of this debate. So on the one side, you had Republicans exceptionally motivated by the prospect of putting conservative justices on the Supreme Court to achieve this. And on the other hand, you have Democrats exceptionally motivated to try, at least now, to get some sort of legislative legislative alternative um, to Roe v. Wade to try and set some kind of precedent down themselves through Congress. So that, I think, makes this really interesting. There's a bit of data which could suggest the direction this is going to go. So we've had a few polls on whether people approve of particularly the Dobbs versus Jackson ruling. And it hovers somewhere in the region of 55 to 60 percent of adults disapproving with the decision, with somewhere in the region of 40 percent approving is sort of where where we're sitting at. Um, So it is an unpopular decision. Majority of people disagree with it but i don't think the majority is is large enough or passionate enough to significantly change the barometer of public opinion beyond this issue because biden's approval ratings are very low at the moment the general barometer of house um house opinions is skewed towards the republicans there was a marginal shift in the day after dobbs versus jackson but nothing significant so I think we're sitting in an inv- a climate, a political climate that is lean Republican and whether these decisions will make 
enough of a difference to shift that to lean Democrat. I'm not convinced. Um, but I think there is a potential there in just how much of the population disapprove of this decision to shift that needle if by the time we get to the midterms the supreme court rulings are still the number one issue on people's agenda but i don't know what do you think churn yeah um i think it's really interesting from my point of view because we're coming up to a midterms under a democratic president and we know sam the laws of midterms is that the party opposed that's not in the white house tends to have a much higher enthusiasm. So we saw that in 2018, 2014, 2010, 2006, for example. So therefore, I wonder, therefore, given the fact that it's a natural enthusiasm gap in favour of the Democrats this time around, uh, in favour of the Republicans this time around, whether it would be these, given the fact that liberals, and particularly women who gave the Democrats that the majority in 2018, will now feel that they need to get through something through the legislature. You know, they, go, they had to come out and vote and that could juice turnout on the Democratic side. Now, I'm not saying that could reduce the enthusiasm gap because I think the biggest component of it is that Biden's approval ratings is very low. But nonetheless, I think it could reduce the margin of defeat let's say, for the Democrats and save a few of them. Not that I think it will make a difference between whether they hold the House or not. So I think it's marginally it could impact. And at the end of the day, you know, people do care about their wallets and how the cost of living is a huge issue. We see this elections all around the world. You know, we've covered many European elections, few European elections where we've seen the impact of, you know, a vote is very grumpy and they're throwing out incumbent governments left, right and centre or they want and slightly different change of opinion. So I think that that could still happen, but nonetheless, I think it can make a marginal change in terms of what the margin of defeat, or it could save those some of those democratic leaning seats. I think what could be very interesting is the fact that since the Dobbs versus Jackson ruling, we've had one um, special election to the House. That was in the Nebraska first congressional district, which has a partisan index rating of R at plus 11. Now, the circumstances of it is that Republican Jeff Fontenberry resigned on the March 31st, uh, 2022, after he was indicted and arrested for lying to the FBI about campaign contributions. But nonetheless, what I think is interesting is the fact that the Republican might flood in this case only one district, and don't forget the partisanship is R plus 11, by a margin of R plus 5, which is a vastly overperformance by the Democrats. And I wonder what that could mean in the midterms moving forward. Granted, turnout was low, but nonetheless, I do think that was very interesting to watch. Um, and, and speaking of special elections as well, we also saw the special election that took place in Texas 34, which was already um, a flip ahead of the midterms coming later this year, which is just, I think it, it demonstrates um, the the direction the political mood seems to be going in already and could serve an, as an early indication of the kind of seats that are going to be competitive when November comes around. One thing I did I did wonder is, and and I listened to, we're, we're both big fans of 538 on this podcast, and they've just launched their um, model for 2022. And I encourage you to go and check out their website. It's a fascinating model. They're, they're great statisticians and um, political pundits. But one thing they did mention on their most recent podcast was how interesting this atmosphere is going into the midterms because you have an incumbent Democratic president, but one of the most pressing policy issues of the day is something that's come from a conservative um, decision. So you look back to the 2010 midterms, the most controversial topic was Obamacare, which was a controversial policy passed by the incumbent Democratic administration. This time around, we have an incumbent Democratic administration where the most controversial thing on the table is something passed by a conservative-controlled Supreme Court. So we're sort of in unknown territory in terms of the impact of incumbency because I think what matters a lot in the next three or four months is what what takes precedent in voters' minds when they go into the ballot box? Because state elections and local elections are going to be really key here because it's going to be the state legislatures that now will have the power to decide whether abortion is legal in that state. So that's going to motivate a lot of energy on the state level. And given that 
midterm elections are state motivated because they're for Congress, they're not for the president. I wonder if we could have a bit of a reverse to the trickle down effect, which is a trickle up effect from people being passionate on the state level and then also reflecting that vote in the in the more congressional side of things as well. So I did think their point they made about just how interesting this atmosphere is was a really interesting point to be made because it is unusual because usually the the big topics of debate are around what the incumbent administration has done not what the supreme court which was basically created by the previous administration has done um so that i thought that was an interesting point they made yeah i think that's very interesting i didn't think of it that way actually and i think that would be very interesting indeed i think in the short term particularly on the democratic side is that I wonder whether there will be in the primaries to come, and there still are primaries to go, whether that could benefit women who are running on the ballot, particularly, given the fact that abortion will be very fresh and Democrats in the short term, at the very least, will be motivated by what has happened in the Supreme Court. So therefore, I think with female candidates could get a short term advantage. The caveat whether this impact in November is, of course, is only in July. So there are, there are four months to go. And as we know, Sam, a week, if a week's a long time in politics, let's not even talk about what four months could bring. So I think that could be very interesting by itself. But nonetheless, I, I do wonder, though, given this environment where we have in the Nebraska special election, it was because of the presence in that congressional district of Lincoln, which is a state capital of uh, Nebraska, more liberal leaning. That's where quite it was quite high, high turnout in that area. That could explain why the Democrats overperformed. And then you refer to Texas, where the Democrats lost that district. It was a D plus five district, and they elect and they elect the Republican. Now Nancy Pelosi will still remain speaker. But does that suggest to you, Sam, that some of you agree with me that some of the contours that we saw in the 2020 presidential election, Democrats doing better in cities, you know, medium-sized cities in the suburbs, for example, I suspect that some of the suburban voters, particularly female suburban voters, could go back because of this ruling. But the Hispanics, certainly along that, does present some vulnerabilities for the Democrats today. Oh, one absolutely. Um, and I think... I think in many ways the contours of the 2020 presidential election will will return, if not more hardened than we had in 2020, because we still have the same sort of po heavily polarised political environment. The Republican Party, for all intents and purposes, is still the party of Donald Trump and the ideolo ideology that surrounds that. And the Democratic Party, to all intents and purposes, is leaning more towards the left, even though the token moderate won the primary and also then won the presidential election. So those two trends, I don't think, have gone away. And if we look at some of the primaries that have already taken place, I think there's a strong indication of those two things. I mean, look at the, the Trump influence, I think, is, is clear. There have been... A, uh, races here and there where the Trump back candidate has not won, but on the whole, the Trump back candidates have won and won big. South Carolina 7th, I think, is a key indicator of this. Um, Representative Tom Rice lost his primary to State Representative Russell Fry. Now, Tom Rice was an impeachment supporter. Um, he was one of the 10 House Republicans who voted to impeach Donald Trump. Well, in that primary, Tom Rice just narrowly missed out on scraping 25% of the vote compared to Russell Fry, who got 51% of the vote. So he was absolutely wiped out. Um, in the same state, Nancy Mace narrowly escaped a Trump challenge. She was a vocal critic. She didn't vote to impeach, but she was a vocal critic of Trump. And then if you look at the Ohio Republican primary on the Senate side, it was an absolute bloodbath. The race was all over the place, but J.D. Vance ended up emerging the victor of that after a very late endorsement by Donald Trump, which completely revived his campaign. J.D. Vance had run out of support and run out of money. Overnight, after the Trump endorsement, he surged into first place. Five million dollars of, of support poured into the state, and his opponent, Josh Mandel, completely lost the lead, and J.D. Vance emerged the victor there. And I, I mean, that just to me is completely symbolic of the power that Trump has in the Republican Party, that he can completely turn around 
a dying campaign. So going back to your original question of are the same um, fault lines still present as 2020, the same demographic indicators, I, I certainly think that this midterm is going to look a lot like 2020. It probably, looking at the numbers now, is going to go in the other direction than 2020 presidential election went. But I think the same sort of the same sort of conflicts are emerging. And the only and one of the other thing that's different is that these are on new maps. Redistricting has took place. This is a new congressional battleground that has been largely because of 2020 drawn up by mostly pro-Republican um, legislatures in the states that matter. Yeah, and I think the the biggest test of Trump's hold on whether it's absolute or maybe there's one or two exceptions, don't forget, Liz Cheney's primary in Wyoming will be hasn't come up yet. And I think that is one that everyone is looking at because this is Republican political loyal, royalty, you know, the daughter of former Vice President Dick Cheney and Wyoming is the, one of the most Republican states in the union. So I think that one is one of the next big ones to come up. And I think given the record of how Trump's endorsements and impact Trump's endorsement, the other one is called Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania itself. And, you know, he squeaked out a win despite not really living in Pennsylvania. But I think that's another issue we can talk about closer to the midterms and whether that gives John Fentiman an advantage. But nonetheless, I do, I do think that does show. And I think both sides, both the never Trumpers as such and the Trump wall are watching the Wyoming primary with keen interest, actually. On the Democratic side, I think it's a little bit more of a mixed picture. Um, I'm not sure you're going to agree with me, Sam, but uh, I think the one thing that does stick out to me, and generally, I, I find that Democrats are better at nominating candidates who, unlike, let's say, and most famously, the 2012 Senate races in Missouri and Indiana, where the Republicans nominate the candidates who comment, ironically, about abortion, put them out, put them out of contention. I think the Democrats have largely been not able been able to avoid putting up candidates that could detriment the chances of holding on to the district but nonetheless i do think that the oregon fifth district kurt schrider lost his renomination to a much more progressive laurie chavez derima in a district in uh, uh that is not within portland and i think a d plus one so that's prime target losing your incumbent there and in a district that could flip the Republican. I think that could be something that where the Democrats shot themselves in the foot. So that could be the sentence of the progressives. But nonetheless, Sam, I would like to point out what happened in not in a congressional election, but what happened to the San Francisco district attorney. Uh, his name is Chica Bowden, who was um, ousted in a recall election. Now, San Francisco, as you know, is uber liberal. This is you know, one of the most liberal cities in America. And Bowden was ousted by a campaign filled by crime concerns. And um, and this is not, and this is, and and this is after Bowden, you know, sent um took very much one of those Black Lives Matter kind of approaches and a very liberal approach to crime. And he was recalled in San Francisco. So I think that's very interesting. Indeed, he and I think that's something to watch moving forward, how the Democrats, that could be the backlash actually from the 2020 and some of the house races that was lost in particular was viewed on this. I think even in San Francisco that he was successfully recalled, I think is very interesting to watch. Oh, for sure. And actually that had slipped under my radar. I didn't know about that one, but that is a really interesting case. I think an another thing that I wanted to bring up, which comes back to our um, Supreme Court discussion earlier is actually we won't have to wait until the midterms to get some legislative indicators on the response to the Supreme Court decision because we actually have coming up a um, referendum on a Kansas constitutional amendment um, which which is going to pose the question as to whether Kansas's constitution protected abortion rights in the state and if that decision goes against um, that that judgment. We will then have a situation where the Kansas state legislature can go steamrolling ahead in restricting abortion right down. Um, so that will be an interesting one to watch because Kansas, as we know, is a is a red state. It's constantly electing um, Republicans. Um, and this will be a good in not a governor, well, though, except I was going to say, except for 
the governor, which is an interesting caveat. But nonetheless, it'll be a good indication of to how passionate Republican voters are about these kind of decisions. So it'll be interesting to see that if this amendment passes and they do put in the constitution, they do affirm that there is no constitutional right to abortion in Kansas. I think that will be an interesting indication of just how passionate Republicans are about this issue, because out both of us share the same suspicions that this is an issue that has the potential to energize both sides. And I think this Kansas decision will be an early indication of whether we are correct. Well, I think one thing we can say for sure is that this midterms could have very high turnout because we can see both sides were very divided America, both energized by quite some historic Supreme Court races and some of the candidates that are up there. The presence of Donald Trump has always proven to be a get out the vote winner for both Democrats and Republicans. So I think that is one prediction I think we're safe to make is that it is going to be potentially a more higher turnout midterm elections mm. than a lower turnout midterm elections. And finally, Sam, to wrap up uh, what has been a fascinating discussion, and we will come back in a couple of months' time with a proper preview of the midterm elections. Well, what do you think will be the themes are uh, expected to be? And if you could give a several races at this stage that you are most interested in, what would that be? I think the themes question is a really difficult one because my instinct would be to say that I think the um, abortion um, decision on the Supreme Court is going to be a strong theme because, as I said, it will be really important on state legislative races. And I think that will then have a knock-on effect on how important it is on a congressional level as well because if Democrats decide that this is a big vote winner, I think they will push on this issue massively going into the midterms. So we'll need to we'll need to wait and see on that one. I think cost of living is going to be an issue. Um, I think also the Biden presidency is going to be an issue because his appro his approval ratings are low, and traditionally, midterms, particularly in the first term of um, a president's uh, a president's tenure are very treacherous territory for, for new presidents and are a great opportunity for voters to demonstrate their disapproval with the presidency. So if Biden's approval ratings do stay this low and there's no material change in that, then I don't expect any issue to be able to detract from that in being a referendum on Biden's presidency. But I do think that this Dobbs versus Jackson ruling has changed the game a little bit and has provided potentially a little window of opportunity for the Democrats because if they can mobilize their base on this issue, as you said, I don't think we're expecting at this stage the Democrats to defend the House because they frankly they nearly lost it in 2020. But they could it could be damage control. It could prevent them from losing the Senate and it could limit the losses they suffer in the House to make it less of a red wave this time around. Um, as for your second question on races I'm keeping an eye on, the big one for me is the Pennsylvania Senate race because I think that could deter that that will be the key determinant into whether the Democrats are actually competitive in trying to control the Senate. Because if they do successfully flip Pennsylvania, which if they are on the same sort of trends as 2020, they should be doing because Pennsylvania went blue in 2020 and went blue in a in a reasonable margin um and if they do flip that then the republicans need to flip two seats to regain the majority in the senate which i can definitely see what the route they can do that quite comfortably but the races i think on the senate side more so than the house are very individual they have strong incumbents in they're much more in they're much more interesting to look at and i think national trends play less of a role on the senate side than that they play on the house side so that will be interesting for me and i think pennsylvania is the key is almost the tipping point state for me as to whether this senate is going to be whether this senate election is going to be competitive or not um so yeah that, that's my main answer to that question. Yeah, I, I largely agree with you on the themes. You know, in the end, you know, as Bill Clinton famous, it's, it's the economy is stupid that will probably determine that. And, you know, with lots of with gas prices already high and Americans are quite sensitive to gas prices compared to some other countries, 
you know, all these days will matter in terms of what the midterms could look like. And I think just social issues, of course, gives it an added dimension. Um, for me, the races to watch, I think Pennsylvania is absolutely correct. It would be a critical state. Uh, the, the Senate race I was going to nominate was Nevada, uh, the Nevada Senate race, because this is the first Senate election without Harry Reid, the former ma the U.S. Major Senate Majority Leader, and he was a famed Nevada machine. He was able to get out of the vote, particularly effective in Clark County. And how the Democrats perform in Clark County without Harry Reid and with an environment where Hispanics in, are moving towards Republicans will be particularly interesting to watch. So Catherine Cortez Masio's race in, in Nevada will be one of the races. And if she does hold on, and um, uh, unknown at this stage, if she does hold on, I think that will be very interesting and it will really help the Democrats maintain control, particularly as if Mark Kelly next door is also up for our election as well. The funny thing is that I think that despite Nevada having a long Democratic history, I find it interesting that her, she's more vulnerable than Mark Kelly next door in Arizona. So I think that tells you the changing demographics of America, really. I think on the... I, mean, I think it says, I think it says a lot about how Republican leaning this election is seeming at the moment, that we are talking about Nevada as being one of the key races to watch because Nevada has two Democratic senators and both for Hillary Clinton and for Biden in 2016 and 2020, respectively. Um, and the fact that Nevada is on the table and is a realistic Republican pickup opportunity, I think says everything you need to know about this election. It's very much going to be a situation of the Democrats on the defensive and the Republicans on the attack. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. And actually, the final point I'd like to end on is we will talk about governor races because I think they are very interesting to, to, to watch out for. I think two that will stand out to me is one, we talked about, uh, similar to uh, Kansas, I think, of course, is really interesting. Laura Kelly, a Democrat in a Democratic president, very interesting how she travels. I would just like to bring out Tony Evers in Wisconsin. Now, why Wisconsin to me is more interesting than Michigan, because it's generally tight in Wisconsin. It always has been very tight. And Wisconsin has a much more red legislature than Michigan next door. So I think him holding on is absolutely critical in a background state for the Democrat, yeah. particularly if some of them, you know, some of the shenanigans we saw in 2020 might be repeated. It would be very useful to have a Democrat governor in Tony Evers remain there. And I mean, finally, it's also I like a battleground on the Senate side in Wisconsin as well, because Ron Johnson is up for re-election and we know that the Democrats want to be competitive in Wisconsin on the Senate and presidential side. So I think Wisconsin will be another one to watch out both on the Senate side and the gubernatorial side. 100% agree. And the final one I would like to talk about is the Massachusetts governor election, because this is an election in which we're seeing a retiring Republican, very popular in governor in Charlie Baker, who is not running. Now, the reason why I wanted to talk about this is the fact that very often voters in New England are able to differentiate between Republicans nationwide and the Republicans at state level, who are often much more liberal, in particularly socially liberal. It's very interesting to see Phil Scott, the Vermont governor's reaction is very different from some, and Larry Hogan for that matter, Maryland, very different from the rest of the Democrat, uh, Republicans elsewhere. And I think if whether this brand of split ticketing can survive in New England will be very interesting to watch from my point of view, because New England in has a very strong history in Vermont and Massachusetts are deep blue states at the presidential level, but they're still elected Republican governors. I think this is going to be the, one of the biggest tests of this, and it'll be very interesting to see whether they hold on in the next election. But Sam, I'm sure you're going to agree with me. That's a lot to look forward to, and this won't be the last, isn't it? No, I mean, there really is. And US elections, we always take a great interest in because one, they're so frequent, and two, they're so significant as well. Um, and I think we'll, we're, we're both looking forward to seeing what happens in the midterms, even if we're not necessarily looking forward to the outcome. Um, but we'll, we're going to see what happens because, as we've said multiple times on this episode already, four months is a long time in politics, an extremely long time in politics. So many, many things can change between now and November. And um, there are many more candidates to choose and there are many more races to, to dive into. So 
I'm sure we'll be talking about it several times before the big day in November as well. Yep, and you know, we've always seen surprises in elections and you know, who knows what could be coming up here. But for now, that is it for the latest episode of Ballot to Talk About. We will be taking a little summer break, but don't worry, we will be aiming to be back in September with season 3B, as we call it a ballot to talk about. And we can look, we can look forward to for elections to come in Brazil, Sweden, and of course, as we've been discussing this episode, the US midterm elections. Uh, just to whet your appetite, we will be here for a very special episode to come in the next few weeks, which Sam and I are very excited about. It'll be a little bit different. But nonetheless, it is something that has been in the works for a couple of months, and we are very excited to bring you to that. So do watch out for that. In the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at at Ballot underscore Talk. And do leave us a rating or review, or simply tell your friends about us. My name is Chen Han, and until next time, we'll speak to you soon. Have a very good summer holidays ahead.